Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. Matthew 28, verse number 1, the Bible says this, And at the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become as dead men. The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear ye not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and hailed him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they meet me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city, and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders, and had taken counsel, they gave large sum unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by nine, and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. You may be seated. Let's bow for a brief word of prayer, and then we'll get to the message that the Lord would have for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, as thank and humbly, God, as we know how. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to be in church on this Resurrection Day Sunday morning. And, Lord, for all of that, all of that means to each and every one of us, Lord, we realize that the day in which we live, that Easter, just like every other holiday, has been so commercialized and, and Lord, has been painted in such a picture by the world. And, Lord, there's some things that I, that I enjoy about Easter that, uh, Lord, are, are more physical than spiritual 
spiritual. I enjoy spending time with my family. Lord God, I enjoy just having those kind of things. But Lord, the reason for this day and the reason for, uh, Lord, what we call Easter is not just for family and it's not uh, for commercialism or anything else or even good times and fun times to be had. But Lord, it is a day where we take the day and we, we recognize that we have a Savior that's very much alive and well. And Lord, we're so thankful that we can pray to you this morning because you're alive and you hear us. And Father, we do pray this morning that your will would be done. Father, I pray as I often do prior to preaching, you'd forgive me of sin, empty me of self, fill me with your spirit, use me for your glory. Help me, God, to be a blessing to those, Lord, that hear me speak today. Father, I pray that you would help the words that I give, Lord, to be your words as you use me, Lord, to just elevate what the Bible already says. And I pray, dear God, that your will would be done. Speak to each and every heart. If there's one lost, save them. If there's one backslid, I pray they'd get right with you today. And Lord, I pray for all of those that are saved, God, that you would touch them, help them, speak to them as only you can minister to every need of each and every person here. And Father, we'll thank you, Lord, for what you do in the name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen and amen. When we come to this passage of Scripture, the, the account of the Lord here of His resurrection, we understand that we come to the Gospel of Matthew. We called that, we read that together, and we understand that we are in, God, we are in Matthew's account of the resurrection, uh, I hate to use the word story, but the resurrection story, uh, the telling of this event, the resurrection narrative uh, through Matthew as the human penman. And here we understand that being here, there's a couple of things that I want to mention just by way of introduction. Number one is this, that it is commonly believed that the Gospel of Matthew was the first of the four Gospels to be written. And this is what that means to us, is that when it came to the narrative of the uh, historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the words that we just read are the very first words, the very first way that that story was ever given perpetually to the world in what we just read. Now, I don't know if that's as big to you as it is to me, but if this is the first gospel account of that, to me, that is is a very big deal that what we have just read together was the first time, the first manner in which the resurrection story was given. And really, I have no, I have no uh, problems believing uh, that this being the earliest written. And the, and the reason is it's because out of all of the gospel accounts, and in Sunday school, I kind of, I kind of described some differences between uh, the four. But in all of the accounts, this. This one is it's, it's kind of it's more brief. It is it is more full, if you will. It tells the story in tandem in a nutshell. It wraps up the entire story and it gives us everything that we would need to know about the story in terms of the fact that Jesus is alive. Now, Mark and Luke and John they add details to that. But I'll say this: if all we had was Matthew, uh, Matthew's account and Matthew. Matthew's writing of it. Friend, we wouldn't have to hang our heads this morning. Amen. Uh, we would be able to rejoice in a resurrected Savior just as much if we only had Matthew as we can if we have all four of them. Amen. And so I rejoice in that this morning. And so not only do we understand that it is most likely the very
very first gospel pen, but also it is amazing to think about the order in which God gave us the Bible. He gave us this account first. If you read the New Testament the way that we have it in our Bible, you must come to Matthew first if you're going to go in the order of the Scriptures. And so there is something about this passage in particular that God wants to be at the forefront of our minds. And so with that being said, it gives us the story of the resurrection uh, kind of in a nutshell, kind of just all together. And so that was the reason why I wanted us to read it together uh, this morning. But we understand by the time we come to the resurrection scene, if you will, the, by the time we come to these particular events, we understand uh, that the Lord Jesus has been accused as an evildoer, as we saw on Wednesday night in our study uh, at Calvary. And so we understand that he has been charged with blasphemy by the religious leaders. He has been charged with rebellion and insurrection uh, by the physical government of his day, the Roman Empire. He has been scourged according to Pilate's command. He has been beaten and scarred and marred in the, on the scourging post of the Romans. He has been led to Calvary where he would lay down his life on, uh, that he would lay down his life and had his hands and his feet nailed to a wooden cross at about 9 a.m. on the day of his crucifixion and between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Jesus Christ would be on the cross dying for the sins of the entire world as the Lamb of God that was slain, amen, before the foundation of the world as the Lamb of God that would take away our sins. We realize that Jesus died somewhere around 3 p.m. according to the scriptures was taken off the cross and was placed in a borrowed tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea sometime before 6 p.m. and the changing of the of the Jews days at 6 p.m. as that day of resurrection turned into the new day according to Jewish law those that were crucified those that uh, were to be put in the tomb they could not stay on the cross and so they had to come down from the cross and be put in the tomb before the day was to come and so we understand here that that is what has taken place Jesus is has died he has been placed in a tomb and then we understand that Jesus has rose from the grave the Bible says bright and early amen on there on Sunday morning we understand that Sunday morning as early amen on Sunday Jewish Jewish on the Jewish calendar as early as he could on Sunday he gets up from the grave he walks out of the grave victorious over as I said earlier death hell and the grave and we understand that the story of Jesus's death burial and culminating in his resurrection and his ascension what a wonderful story that is what a wonderful story the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ I would say this, the more that I study this message, the more that I see that God perfectly, He had a perfectly ordered plan, and He completely fulfilled a perfectly ordered plan so that we could have a Savior that died for our sins and rose again that we might be able to be redeemed. Only God can, can cause to come to pass what came to pass in Jerusalem on that day. I'm so thankful this morning that our Savior did not stay dead. I'm so thankful that if I were to go to Jerusalem, I had to go to 
the ancient world tonight. And as I walk in that tomb, I wouldn't find any remnants of a body. I wouldn't find any evidence that anyone had ever been there because he wasn't there to stay. There's no bones there. I could take you, if, if somebody pointed me in the right direction, I could take you to the tomb of an individual that was called in history the Buddha, and you could go to his tomb and find his bones. I could take you, if pointed in the right direction, to where Joseph Smith that started the Mormon church is buried. You could go into the Middle East and find the remnants of where Muhammad is and where he's buried. And you can say, that's him. All of the individuals that have arisen up across the scenes of history as false gods and false Christ, they have all died and they stayed dead. But here this morning, we understand that we have four books of our Bible and all, there's remnants all throughout the Scripture that we have most certainly a Savior that died physically, was 100% dead. He was buried as a dead man. He had his side pierced as a dead man. He was wrapped in grave clothes, but he came out of the grave. He took off the grave clothes. He took the napkin off his face. He folded in the tomb, and he walked out very much alive. Listen to me now. Never to die again. He's alive today. You say, well, if he's not in the tomb, well, where is he? Amen. The Bible says in Hebrews that he is sitting on the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus wasn't lost to us. We know exactly where he is. He's sitting on his father's right hand, the hand of favor, a hand of authority. He's sitting on the right hand of his father. And you say, preacher, what's he doing there? He's interceding for me now, and he's waiting for the day that his father will look to him and say, son, go get your bride, and he'll take all of us that know the Lord as our Savior with him. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 18, and so shall we, amen, amen, that we will comfort one another with those words. And it's all because the scripture says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. I tell you this today, I'm glad that Jesus is not still in the grave. If I could take you to Jerusalem and his bones were still there, this, this morning we'd have plenty of reasons to be in great despair. So this morning I want to preach on this thought. What if Jesus were still in the grave? What if Jesus was still in the grave? Number one, let me say this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. If Jesus was still in the grave, our downcast would be permanent. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Notice, let's look at the gospel accounts together of the resurrection. If you do, if you read Matthew and you read Mark and you read Luke and you read John, one of the things that you'll find coming up over and over again is that you'll find a group of people that are quite sad about the events that have recently transpired in their city. There is sadness on every page of the early part of the resurrection story. 
They're, to them, they understand that there has something, there is something that has taken place that is more than just their favorite, uh, their team losing a game at their favorite sporting event. And sports were huge in this time. Is more than just a failed campaign of their preferred political candidate and politics was on the rise as much in this time as ever. We have more. I don't know if there's anybody in this building that has not ever heard the word Caesar. They're not, they're here. They are not missing out on a big raise or a big promotion or the ability to climb a ladder of success. All of those things will make us sad. Amen. I, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've been vying for that spot and you, you've been vying to be a manager or climbing a ladder of success and they pass somebody over you, there'll be a tinge of sadness because you've been working for that. You've been laboring for that. You've wanted that. But that's not the kind of sadness that I'm talking about here. You see, for these individuals, what, they, what, what has taken place in their life has left them entirely downcast because as we read uh, these verses, we can make an argument that maybe they're not just downcast, but really you can look at them and see them as almost outright depressed. Yeah. The reason is, is because their team didn't lose. They didn't lose a promotion. Their favorite political candidate didn't lose, but they've experienced a death. If there's anything that I've learned in life that will cause somebody to go into an abyss of despair is losing a loved one. I understand that. I have dealt with many people going through a loss. I myself have lost both of my parents. I've lost... Uh, never knew my, my dad's side. His parents never knew them. The only grandfather I've ever known in my life, I preached his funeral as a 17-year-old boy. Preached my dad's at 16. Preached my mom's at 21. I, I've worked in the, I've, since I have got married, I worked in the funeral business for several years before pastoring. And then as a pastor, I have dealt with many people who have lost loved ones, who are still battling even, even years later with the loss of someone because those kinds of hurts don't easily go away. They say time heals all wounds, but they never go away. These individuals, they have not just experienced a death, but they've experienced a death of someone, and not the someone that they vaguely know, not someone that they just simply know of. It's not someone like that. But here they have lost the single most important person in their life. You go through all of the names that we find in the resurrection account, and Jesus Christ was the most important person on the planet to them. And in these moments, he's gone. There is a hurt, there is a heart, there is heartbreak that comes along. His, his body was in a tomb, and he was gone to them, or so they thought. Their hearts are broken. No, look with me at Matthew 28, verse number 1. The Bible says this, And in the end of the Sabbath, as it, began to, uh, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. The Bible says that they are coming to visit the grave of a dead loved one. 
I've never seen anybody. I've seen hundreds of people visiting graves in cemeteries. I've never seen anyone do it joyfully. There is, a, there is a sad, somber remembrance when people go to a grave and they realize that one of my most important loved ones is in that sod their body is. And if they're saved, we know they're with the Lord. We understand that. But at the same time, what is in the ground is the them that we have known. That is the, that is the vessel, the shell that we became familiar with in life. And that separation caused great sadness. Here we understand Mark chapter number 16 and verse number 1 tells us, Mark chapter number 16 and verse number 1 tells us that they are making plans to go and to visit. The Bible says this, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought, a sweet, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Not only are they coming to the grave to visit the grave, but they are coming to literally, think about how sad this would be, to literally handle the body of their deceased loved one. They're wanting to put spices on him. They're wanting to, to cover his body in sweet aromas because in this day, uh, prior to the common use of embalming, they're trying to, to stay away that decaying process as long as they can. They have loved Jesus so much, they want to handle his body in the most respectful way possible. I can, oh, I can, I'm telling you, I have, have worked in the funeral business. I have been a part of handling and preparing many individuals for burial. But when it was, when it was my, I was working in the funeral business when I was 21, when my mom passed away and I had worked on dozens of other people's family members, but it was a whole different ball game when it was my mama. I couldn't have imagined having been the one to prepare her body for burial. And here they're coming in with their hands and their, they, they are, they're doing what they, they're doing, putting the spices and trying to, trying to be a blessing to the most important person in their life. As you read further, you only see more sadness because if you look at Mark chapter number 16 and verse number 10, the Bible talks to us about Mary Magdalene having a meeting with, uh, the, um, having a meeting with uh, the disciples. And the Bible tells us this in verse number 10. And she went and told them that she had been with him, speaking about Jesus after his resurrection. And what are the disciples doing when she arrives? The Bible says, as they mourned and wept. These disciples are grown men. And when Mary walks in, they are mourning over his death. They are weeping over his death. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter number 24 and verse number 17. The Bible tells us this about them, Luke 24 and verse 17. The Bible says this about the Emmaus disciples, the Emmaus travelers, if you will, that were followers of the Lord Jesus. The Bible said that he said, this is speaking about Jesus, as he appeared to those men. This is what Jesus said to them. What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? It has become so sad for these Emmaus disciples that they are leaving Jerusalem in sadness. 
I don't know necessarily where the, I know they're headed to Emmaus. I know they're on the road to Emmaus, which is just a little, little while away from Jerusalem uh, uh, geographically. I don't know what the end all to be all reason for their departure was, but if I get to heaven and find out that it was just because the events of the day had gotten so depressing and so sad and so hard to deal with that they just decided to leave Jerusalem and go somewhere where it might not remind them so much of their dead Savior, I wouldn't be surprised to find that was the reason when I got to heaven. Jesus looked at them and he identified sadness in them. He said, why are you so sad? John chapter number 20 and verse number one tells us of Mary Magdalene. The Bible says this, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark under the sepulcher and see of the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other uh, disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away my Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they've laid him. I mentioned in Sunday school that I believe that when Mary sees that tomb open, she is absolutely distraught and leaves the scene entirely. She runs in anguish. She runs away in sadness. The Bible later on goes on to say in verse number 11 of the same chapter, that Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked inside the sepulcher. Verse 13 says that the, the angels that she saw in verse 12 say unto her, Woman, why weepest? Thou. She said, because they've taken away my Lord, and I know not where they've laid him. In verse number 15, Jesus says to her, woman, why weepest thou? Four times it is mentioned that Mary is weeping at the garden tomb. We find here that all throughout the resurrection story, all throughout these four Gospels, all you see is saddened faces. All you see is longing hearts and tear-filled eyes. That's what the resurrection begins with. They are crying because Jesus, their Lord, their Savior, their best friend, their everything has been taken away from them. And the Bible tells us, you think about what the Bible says in Mark chapter number 16 and verse number 9 concerning Mary Magdalene, the one that we just saw in John 20, is crying and her heart is broken. We wonder why she's so sad. Mark 16, 9 says this, Now when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and it made the Holy Ghost of God, when he gave this to Mark, made sure to add this caveat, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Go with me to Mark chapter number five for a moment. This lady that is probably the most devoted female disciple, follower, whatever you want to call her, the most, de most devoted female to Christ that we find in the Bible was a lady that had been demon-possessed. And not just with one demon, the Bible says she had seven. You say, why do we see Mary over and over again so distraught, so sad? Because as I said before, Jesus was the most important person in her life. Jesus was the one who gave her her life back. 
could you imagine how thankful you would be if your entire body was possessed, your mind and your actions was possessed by seven demons of hell controlling you and Jesus cast them out and now you're in control of your senses again. You've got your entire life back. Jesus gave her everything. Mark chapter number 5 tells us how people treated those that were demon-possessed. Mark chapter number 5, verse number 1 says, And they came over onto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him. No, not with chains. Because that he had often he had he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. Now he's not worshiping him as as a devoted follower. He's worth those demons are bowing themselves before him because they realize that even though they are serving the devil and they are doing the, the bidding of the devil, if you will, they recognize the demons within her recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Right. Notice what the Bible says about this demon-possessed man. Does it sound like he has a great social life? Absolutely not. The Bible is letting us know here that the only time human beings come around this man is to try to bind him with chains. The only social life he has is around the tombs with the dead. That's his constant life. Nobody wants to be around a demon-possessed person. There is no quality of life for a demon-possessed person. There is, there, there are, there, there's nothing but destruction for those that are oppressed of the devil. He's cutting himself. He, he's harming himself. Uh, he is in uh, the worst place that you can imagine, in the worst circumstances that you can imagine. And Jesus comes to this man, and before it's all said and done, he is sitting and he's clothed and then he's in his right mind. Can I tell you this? Jesus makes the difference in a person's life. Mary, if that is the way demon-possessed people were treated in the ancient world, Mary knew what it was to be a complete social outcast. But when you look at Matthew's account, and you look at Mark's account, and you look at uh, you look at you look at Luke's account, you know what you'll find headed to the garden tomb in those first few verses. You'll find Mary that has been delivered of devils and saved by the good grace of God, and she's been following the Lord, and she loves the Lord, and He may be dead, but she's headed to the tomb, and she has a group of friends around her. Jesus made the difference for Mary. That's why she is so sad, because the most important person, the one that made all the difference, is gone. Now let me ask you this. If Jesus would have stayed in the grave, how do you think that would have affected Mary? As I said before, they say that time heals all wounds. But if this is your God, this is your Savior, this is the one that for you means everything. 
and he, he's dead and he stays that way, she may serve him for a time. She may, she may try to do, be devoted for a time, but before long, that devotion's going to wear off if he doesn't get up from the grave. She's going to be overcome with sadness. She's going to be buried under the weight of that sadness. If Jesus doesn't get up from the grave, the reason why she's sad and downcast and discouraged and depressed remains. If he stays dead forever, the reason that she's sad is a perpetual thing. If Jesus doesn't get up from the grave, if he stays in the grave, then you and I this afternoon have no reason to ever smile again. The reason we can have hope and we can have joy and we can see bright days as the children of God is because we know that Jesus did not stay dead. He did not stay in the tomb, but he is alive and well. Friend, if it was not for that, if Jesus was still in the tomb, our downcast, our depression would be perpetual. There would be no hope for us to ever find some kind of solace and help with a dead Savior. Number two, if Jesus was still in the grave, not only would our downcast be permanent, but I would say this, our devotion would be pointless. Look at Matthew 28, 1 with me. The Bible says, And in the Sabbath as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. In Mark chapter number 16, verse number 1, the Bible says this. Mark chapter number 16 and verse number 1. The Bible says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and, and Salome had, had bought sweet spices that they may come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And the Bible says there, and they said amongst themselves, who shall roll us, uh, roll us away the stone from the door? And when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. Here we find women that are ready to come. The, first thing in the morning at daybreak while it's still dark and dawn is beginning to dawn is beginning to happen the day the, the sun is beginning uh, to rise daylight is beginning to happen they're on their way when it's dark they're headed to the tomb that they might anoint his body that they might try to show him one last act of devotion that they can amen before uh, they no longer can go in and make any kind of difference in the decaying process and these are women that are, are making plans to figure out how they're going to handle that, that stone, that several thousand pound of a stone. These are women that are, are going there out of devotion, even knowing there's going to be heavy, heavy lifting involved. There's going to be effort. There's going to be, there's going to be strain involved. I would tell you this, this, this afternoon, that is devotion. We see their devotion in their priority. They did not wait until the middle of the day. They came first thing in the morning. It's almost as if they could not wait to get there. They wanted to go as soon as they can. Matthew mentions it. Mark mentions it. Luke mentions it. John mentions it. This was their top priority. 
their devotion in their priority. We see their devotion in their preparation. These spices were something that they had already prepared. When we come to Luke chapter number 24, they're bringing spices they prepared in Luke 23. They, you know, if you will prepare for something, that's something you're serious about. If you're going to take time to pre-plan, that's something you're devoted about. That's something you care about. These women, they didn't just mix that up that day. This was something that they had planned on in advance. That shows devotion. You think about this, devotion in their priority, devotion in their preparation. You think about this, devotion in their planning. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you'll find is there's a group of women that came together. I don't care how you slice it, that takes planning. If you're going to get more than a couple of people in the same place at the same time with the same purpose in the same direction, that's going to take planning. Amen. Amen. And, and, I, and again, I'm not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to make any enemies, but if these ladies were anything like my wife, that's going to take some planning. Amen. That was real quiet. Y'all can say amen. Because when we're planning on going something, she's got every little detail ironed out. She's got every little, every little, I know, I know what time I need to be ready. I know what time we're planning on leaving. I know, I know, you know, I'm asked a thousand questions about our plans. What do you want Maisie to wear? What do you want Joey to wear? What do you want what? I don't care. Just clothes. Amen. <laughs> With my wife, anything she does, for the most part, she'll run by me. When she, when she sends a text message to, to the ladies, she'll say, like a group text, an announcement text, what do you think, is this okay? Does this, does this communicate what you want? All of those things take planning. And with her, sometimes it's more planning than I even need because it all gets run by me. That's a lot of planning. These ladies were planners. Any ladies in the house planners? Amen. I think so. We came in here this morning. You look good. You smell good. All of that kind of stuff takes planning. Amen. Here we find a group of people that came together with the same purpose and the same mind. All of that takes planning. You know what planning does? It shows me how serious you are. People that never plan a thing, it, do, it doesn't make me feel like they're very serious about what they do. Brother Tommy, when he came in for service this morning, he's done it just about every week I can remember since I've been pastor here for five years. He comes in and he hands all of us a sheet of paper that has the songs on it and the plan uh, that he has and for the song service. And, he, and it's always subject to change, but there's a plan involved. Yeah. <laughs> it takes planning. That shows that you care. That shows that you want the service to go well. Amen. When a preacher gets up to preach, you want there to have been some preparation. Amen. If you're going to sit and you're going to listen to a message, you want there to be preparation. Here, these ladies show their devotion to Christ in their preparation. Here we find them devoted to their Savior in His death and right after His death. But here we understand that there are times that emotional devotion will fade over time. They will eventually see things if Jesus... Jesus never got up from the grave. They would eventually see things in their life begin to settle down, and they would be left, as many people are, at the end of a death with their thoughts to where the funeral's over and things have begun to calm down. And you're sitting there and with your thoughts. And you know what runs through your mind probably more than just about anything else? Memories. 
last conversations, last moments together. Do you realize, take your Bible with me to Matthew chapter number 26. If the disciples of our Lord did what you and I do when it comes to death and when everything began to settle down, if Jesus died and he never, now you go with me on this, if he never got up from the grave, things began to go forward, uh, days began to turn into weeks, weeks into months, months into years, and they began to have time to think about the memories and the last set of conversations they had with Jesus when he was alive. Do you know what, what would be included in those last conversations? Matthew chapter number 26 and verse number 30. Here's one, of, here's one of the last conversations they had with the Lord before His death. The Bible says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. This is following the Last Supper. Verse 31, And then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Verse 32, But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. If he dies and does not get up, the last conversation they had with him was him promising a resurrection that never happened. If Jesus promised a resurrection that never happened, here we find these ladies, here we find disciples that are completely and totally devoted to him. They've given him their lives. They've walked away from their occupation. They've went with him day and night for three years of ministry. And we understand they have devoted themselves to his service. They are as devoted as any group of believers has ever been. But if he never gets up from the grave, if he promised them a resurrection that does not happen, their devotion is pointless. Everything they've ever done in the past was worthless and wasted time, and anything that would be done in the future would be a waste of time. Their devotion to him would be pointless if he stayed in the grave. Can I tell you this? We have folks in here, you've loved the Lord, you've been raised in a good home, you were saved at an early age, you've never known anything but God, anything but church, anything but the things of God. If He didn't get up from the grave, everything you've done in life for Him is pointless. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, our faith is vain. If Jesus didn't get up from the grave, the very fact that you and I believe on him is pointless. He's a liar and he's a deceiver. If he promised a resurrection that never happened, if he didn't get up from the grave, our downcast is permanent. If he didn't get up from the grave, our devotion is pointless. Number three, if he did not get up from the grave, our despair would be perpetual. As I've already said just a moment ago, there's no need to be, a dev to be devoted to a God who cannot keep His Word. I'll submit to, I also submit to you this, this morning that there is no need to believe a God who won't keep His Word. You see, if Jesus didn't get up from the grave, it comes because of either two reasons. Either number one, because He could not, or number two, because He would not. If I have a, if I have a God that cannot get out of the grave, He's not a God worth having. Because if he's God, he should be able to do all of that. If I have a God that would not get out of the grave for me, he's also not a God worth, he's not a Savior worth having. 
If He knows my lost condition, He knows how much I need a Savior. He knows that I am dead in trespasses and sins. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Him dying for my offenses and being raised again for my justification, if the only way I can be born again is from a completed gospel message that doesn't just include the death, but also is culminated in a resurrection. And He knows I need that to go to heaven. And He, uh, and he would not because He just simply chose not to resurrect. He's also not a Savior worth having. That's right. So our disbelief all throughout the New Testament account of the resurrection, you will find, as I said before, not only despair on every page and downcast on every page and devotion on every page, but you will find disbelief on every page. You read, the, you read the account of the disciples of the Lord. It took one appearance after another appearance after another appearance after another appearance for them to believe. Mary comes to them and says, I've met with the Lord. He's alive. And they come to the disciples, and the disciples will not believe. Right behind Mary, the women come, and they say that we have heard a message from the angels. She, they said that he is not here. He is risen. And they tell the disciples a story, and they would not believe. We have all kinds of detractors to our faith that say, well, you, you folks that believe in that Bible, you believe in a chauvinistic gospel. You prove that to me in the story of the resurrection. It is, it is the disciples that are boneheaded and won't believe, and the people that believe that Jesus got up from the grave was the women, and they were the first people to ever believe that, that part of the message, and it was them that Jesus sent to share it with everybody else. Isn't that just like us? God had to choose a woman to go tell his preachers what to believe. And I'm not saying because it's out of place. I'm saying they needed the help. Don't ever tell me that we believe in a chauvinistic gospel. If it was not for ladies, we would not have this beautiful story of the resurrection. All throughout those verses, we find the people who are supposed to be the closest to the Lord and to know more about Him than anybody else refusing to believe. The Bible said that their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they wouldn't believe. They say that they're serving a man that was God in human flesh, and they would not believe that God could do, God could do the supernatural. There's disbelief on every page. However, I would say this, if Jesus did not get up from the grave, everything they ever believed would be validated disbelieved would be validated. That you and I, if, if he said that he's getting up from the grave and he did not, not only would we never be able to believe anything he ever said, but I promise you this, I don't know if you're like me, but I would have trouble believing anything anybody else ever told me. If somebody that was that important to me. So God, the one that, I, one that I'm worshiping <laughs> lied to me. If a God lies to me, I'll have a hard time believing any man or any woman that told me anything. Any human being that told me anything. Our disbelief, our disbelief would be perpetual. There would be no end. There would be no end to the disbelief that we would be forced to have. Thomas in John 20 verse 25 talking about the disciples doubting and not having, not believing. Thomas didn't just say that he could not believe. Thomas said, I will not believe. This is a man that's supposed to be a preacher. 
This is supposed to be a man that was one of the Lord's disciples. So if Jesus didn't get up from the grave, if he was still in the tomb, there would be no end to our disbelief. We would have trouble believing anything ever again. So we see that. Number four, let me say this, our detractors would be proven. You see, go with me to Matthew chapter number 28. And I promise I'm almost done. Matthew chapter number 28. Look at verse number 11. You know the story here. The Bible talks about those guards, verse number 11, the watch that had kept the, t had kept the security there at the tomb. Jesus gets up from the grave, and between verse number 12 and verse number 15, they and the chief priests concoct that story, that ruse to be able to explain why Jesus got up. They said, just, just you go tell everybody that his disciples came and stole him in the middle of the night while we slept. And the Bible says that that was so convincing that it was commonly reported, verse 15, among the Jews to the day of Matthew pinning those words. These were the detractors. These were the enemies, if you will, of the resurrection message, of those that would preach the resurrection message. These were those that did not want Jesus to get up from the grave. Look at Matthew 27, just a page prior. Look at verse 62. We understand that that was the whole purpose of the guards being set there. Verse number 62 says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together on the pilot saying, Sir, we remember. Notice what they say. Sir, we remember that that deceiver, they're talking about Jesus. That that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days... I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by nine and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that so the last error shall be worse than the first. Do you see how Jesus not getting up from the grave is at the forefront of their mind? That's what they want. That's what they desire. Now you tell me this, if these individuals that have that at the forefront of their mind, if Jesus actually did not get up from the grave, you tell me how they would act. Here's what they said. They said that he said that he would rise after three days. I can see those guards standing guard there, and each day they would be saying one, <laughs> fully anticipating to get to three. And after they'd get to three, they'd go in the tomb if his body was still there. Can you not see those chief priests going in to the synagogue the next time that the Jews would gather in the synagogue? And those chief priests that had made an enemy of the Lord Jesus and Jesus had taken several times throughout his ministry to make a fool of them publicly and had won many even of the Jews to have faith in him and had pulled them away from the Jewish religion. Can I tell you, if he did not get up from the grave, I promise you those chief priests would have got up in the middle of their congregation and see, I, they would say, see, I told you he was a deceiver. I told you he was a false prophet. I told you he was a liar. And they would gloat and they would brag and they would boast themselves and pound their chest and say, we are the ones that you ought to look to. You took the time to look to that failure and he said he'd get up, but where is he? And they'd take him to the tomb. There he is. He's still dead. If Jesus didn't get up from the grave, all of the enemies of the cross would be proven that they were right, that the detractors would be proven right in all of it. 
hell and all the forces of the devil would have reason to rejoice. The Bible says this about the resurrection. The Bible says this, that if the devil would have known what was taking place on Calvary and what would take place of the resurrection, if the devil would have known what that resurrection would mean, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He would have never put it in Judas's heart to betray him. He would have never done any of that. And Satan thinks that he had the ability to do that. All of those individuals fulfilling the plan of God. Here's the last thing I'll give you this evening, this morning. If Jesus was still in the grave, our downcast would be permanent. Our devotion would be pointless. Our disbelief would be perpetual. Our detractors would be proven. But lastly, our deeds would be profitless. As you go through the resurrection story and even throughout the Gospels and you look at the, you look at the disciples and, and you look at these women and you follow the track of their life and their ministry, you know what you'll find? They're always busy doing something for the Lord. For three years, these disciples never stopped doing something for the Lord. They were always busy. And you know why they were busy? Because He was alive. Here at the end in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mark chapter 16, 15 through 20, Luke 24, 44 through 49, John chapter 20, verse 21 through 23. Do you know what Jesus tells them to do after his bodily resurrection? He tells them to continue being busy and to kick it up a notch. He gives them the Great Commission. So while he's alive physically, they're busy for the Lord. He's alive. When, he's, when he gets back up from the grave, he tells them to be busier for the Lord and fulfill the Great Commission. Why? What's the, the common denominator in the two? That Jesus is alive. Whether it's in his earthly life or after his bodily resurrection, Jesus is alive. However, if Jesus doesn't get up from the grave, there's no reason to be busy for him. There's no reason to go into Jerusalem sharing a message of Jesus Christ. There's no reason to go into all Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth, sharing a message for Jesus Christ. If, if he was dead, that key element of him being alive would be missing, and that is the anchor of the message that we have for the world, that Jesus Christ is alive and well this evening, this morning. I close with this illustration. Dr. Adrian Rogers preached many years ago a famous message called, What If There Had Been No Easter? Out of 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and some of the things that he said was chapter number 15, verse 14, If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. It's pointless for us to preach if Jesus didn't get up. It's pointless for us to believe in Him if Jesus didn't get up. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. If we do preach, we are, we are declaring a false message if Jesus didn't get up from the grave. These are the words that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, We have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. If the dead rise not, and then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. It's pointless. Ye are yet in your sins. They also which have fallen asleep in in Christ, our parish, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, and now, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them which slept. Can I tell you this this evening? If, if Jesus did not get up from the grave, it is pointless for us to serve Him. It's pointless for us to believe in Him. It's pointless for me to preach this message this morning. It's pointless for me to tell you, if you want 
to come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You come to Him by faith. He died in your place and you have access to heaven and to God and to all that He has to offer. Amen. You don't have that if He didn't get up from the grave. You are yet in your sins. My mom and dad, they made professions of faith or at least that's what they told me before they went to, uh, before they went to heaven. If, they, if Jesus didn't get up from the grave, my mom and my dad are in hell tonight. Yeah. Jesus didn't get up from the grave. Every loved one you know that loved God and served God, they're in hell if Jesus didn't get up from the grave. That's hard to hear, but that's the truth of if, if Jesus never got out of the tomb. If he was still in the tomb, everything would be pointless that we know and believe and love and share. Our deeds would be purposeless, profitless if Jesus didn't get up from the grave. If Jesus was still in the tomb... There in the ancient world tonight, Beacon Baptist Church, we might as well close these doors, sell the building to a business somewhere, close our Bibles up, throw them in the garbage can, and wait to die if Jesus never got up from the grave. However, I'll say this to you. I have good news for you this morning. <laughs> Amen. Everything that I preach to you, what would happen if Jesus did not get up from the grave? It's not the case. Amen. Because he did get up. We have proof after proof after proof according to the Word of God. There was over 500 people that saw him at one time. There were dozens of people that saw a resurrected Lord and that would hold up in any courtroom in this world. Physical evidence of nobody. Brother Tommy, I don't, I, don't know how, I don't know how many lawyers you may know. I hope not a whole lot. Amen. <laughs> Unless you just went to school with them or whatever. But I think you'd agree with me. One thing that a lawyer would tell us is when it comes to a murder trial, when it comes to something like that, if there is no body, there's no case. Right. Trying to prove somebody died, if there's no body, there's no case. Yep. Get on an airplane. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the tomb. There's no body. There's no case. Every, and then you have all those witnesses say, the reason why there's no body is because he's alive. We saw him alive. We saw him. That would hold up in any courtroom in this world. I don't have to be so sad and somber and depressed. I can have joy. You study what happened when people encountered a resurrected Christ. The Bible said they had joy. They walked away with joy and gladness and happiness. Resurrection produces joy. Amen. I don't have to be depressed. Jesus is alive. I can be devoted to Him. He's alive. I don't have to worry about my detractors that would want to look at us and, and be enemies of what we believe. Jesus is alive. I can do whatever God wants me to do. And I can believe on Him by faith and trust Him wholeheartedly. Why? Jesus is alive. The things that would happen if Jesus was still in the grave is not anything any of us have to worry about. Because he's not. And I bless his name. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com. <laughs>